You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own and what you owe. We'll help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So a few episodes ago, at the very beginning of the year, we spoke with Fidelity's Kathy Murphy on how nearly three quarters of women are planning to take steps this year to make our money work harder for us. This was a finding that came out of Fidelity's 2018 Women and Investing Study. It also found that nearly half of women are currently investing in stocks and bonds outside of our retirement accounts and emergency funds. That is a wonderful, wonderful start. But our goal is to make that number bigger. And we are starting today by talking with investing expert and long-term financial literacy advocate for women, Manisha Takor. Manisha is a CFA. She's a CFP. She's got a lot of letters that go along with her name. She's also VP of Financial Wellbeing at Brighton Jones, which is a Seattle-based high net worth management firm. And she's got her own podcast. It's called The True Wealth podcast, and she spells wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H. I'm telling all of you that so you can find it on Apple Podcasts. Manisha, thanks for being here. Oh, Gina, it's such a pleasure to be with you in person. In person. I know. I'm so happy to have you in the studio. It is, I have, I got to say, I've read so much of your work through the years in Forbes and other places, just Excellent, excellent track record, and and I'm thrilled to be able to bring you to this audience. So let's start with wealth, spelled W-E-L-L-T-H. What's up with that? So after 25 years of working with exceptionally high net worth um, family offices, endowments, private foundations, now individuals, One of the things that sounds so tried and obvious that you come to see front and center is that money does not make you happy. And so it's this notion of how do you integrate social, emotional, physical, and financial well-being into your definition of, of wealth. Or said slightly differently, it's almost like mapping Maslow's hierarchy of needs onto the financial planning pyramid. In other words, so much of financial planning has been focused on the nuts and bolts, and you need that, but that is a necessary but not sufficient condition in order to experience true financial and overall well-being. And the strategies that you're talking about, I know you work with fabulously wealthy women every day, but they apply to people who are investing in their 401ks, people who are opening their own IRAs across the board? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating to me is in every realm of what we could talk about, whether it's the technical aspects of investing or the components of financial well-being, the only difference between one end of the spectrum and the other are zeros. As you look at this idea of finding that balance of being 
happy with what you have and what it's doing for you. Where do you find on that hierarchy of needs that women get stuck? So I have observed that the happiest people, irrespective of income or net worth, are the ones who are spending their money and their time in deep, deep alignment with what matters most to them in life. And so I think where people get gummed up is in one of two places. One is just being so darn busy, you don't have time to figure out what it is that matters most to you. You're on a track and you you just keep going because it's all you can do to keep it together. And then the second is that you don't have the financial resources to have the peace of mind in order to have the space to think about it. And it's one or the other that, and sometimes both, that I find gums gums us women up when it comes to that algorithm. It was funny to hear you pull out Maslow's hierarchy of needs because I actually have a picture of it in my new book, Women with Money. And I put it in there because as I interviewed hundreds of women about what matters to them, what they want from their money, security, safety, stability, savings, actual cash in the bank kept coming up over and over again. And it appeared to me that we needed to conquer that before we could get busy with the day-to-day job of investing. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's one of the reasons why women's dissatisfaction with the financial services industry overall is as high as it is, because the industry is still so male-dominated, and the overriding mindset still is to start with the tactics. But for us women, it's like, tactics for what? We need to talk about the for what first. Then I can get excited about the tactics. And so I feel like with the advent of financial life planning, the introduction of the financial therapy designation with people like George Kinder, the folks at Money Quotient, you're you're starting to see many more tools in the industry that are resonating with soul-centered men, um, but with women definitely across the board. Why do you think it is that women don't invest? As much as, not that we don't invest, because we do invest through our retirement accounts at work, but we don't identify as investors. I think, and this is a slightly long-winded answer, but um, I'll give you the punchline and then I'll go back into the, the backstory. So the punchline is, I think we feel like we need to be perfect in order to do it. And I don't mean this in a trite way. So somebody told me, when I was getting my MBA, that there were four stages of career success. And to me, they map very much to um, financial stability. And the first stage was becoming an expert at what you do. Women excel at this. Stage two of your career is managing people who do what you excel at. Women rock at this. Then there's this crevice where we women face plant, and that's when you get promoted to start managing things that you don't know anything about. Then you do it to scale. You manage lots of things you don't know anything about. You're the CEO, the COO. And men excel at managing stuff they don't know anything about. And we women often won't jump that crevice until we do. And I think that's what's happening in investing, because investing is the art of making a decision 
in the absence of perfect information. Uh, absolutely. I, Kelly and I have had this conversation a bunch of times, and you just put it better than I ever did, so I'm totally going to rip you off. But I have always felt like there are two different kinds of money questions. There are the kind where I can give you an answer and I can be right. What's the best credit card for me? What's the best insurance policy for me? What's the right kind of travel insurance? You know, I mean, there there are just there are questions that you can actually answer. And then there's how do I invest my money, which is a question that you can't be right about because things move around you. You can be good. You can be good enough, certainly, but you can't be perfect. Exactly. And it also loops back to the fact that uh, what we just were speaking about, that so much of investing is about the numbers first, whereas for women, it's where do we want to go. And so it's hard to invest when somebody's focusing on all these tactics. And the way I like to think about it is if I said to you, Jean, what should I wear when I go out tonight? Well, you couldn't answer that if I didn't tell you where I wanted to go. Right. And that's what the other piece of the disconnect that I think happens. The dialogue isn't starting with where do you want to go so we can find the right investment outfit. And that's another place I think the industry is really weak. So how do you get women over the hump? How do you get women in absence of perfect answers to actually take the leap when what they really want to do is keep money safe? So two pieces to that. The first is to help them understand that keeping your money safe is the surest way to put it at risk by talking about the impact of inflation. And the example I use is if you come home from work and you flop down on your sofa for 30 years and say, take this job and shove it, and you had 100 bucks in your back pocket, you stand up after 30 years, you fall over because your muscles atrophied and the money in your back pocket atrophied as well. And investing is the, po- the, the process of keeping your money from atrophying over time. And so once you get comfortable with that, then I can introduce the concept of active versus indexing. And I find that once women, and I have a unique way of explaining it, using cars, which I don't Give us give us the short version. Okay, so active investing is like driving in the left lane. You are weaving in and out of traffic, trying to get the incremental advantage. Indexing is like driving in the right lane, accepting your fair share of the traffic flow. What happens? Nine times out of ten, the two cars make it to the red light at the same time, but the car in the left lane has sweaty armpits, palpitating heart rate. Car in the right lane is calm, cool, collected, and listening to the Her Money podcast. And (laughs) we hope. (laughs) So um, once people start to understand that investing doesn't have to be in the left lane, suddenly they're open to it. It's a little more boring, but it's often a better way to go. Nine times out of ten, it's a better way to go. So as people get started, if you have somebody listening. And we know we have women who are listening who have never looked into investing outside of their retirement accounts before. What are some questions they need to ask themselves to get going? I literally think, Jean, there are only two questions you need to ask. Number one, what money do I need to spend in the next five years? That is money you do not invest. 
then with the rest of the money that you might be putting in a taxable investment account at Fidelity or or wherever, I literally think you should pick a, I'll use a Fidelity example, you should pick the index-based freedom funds. And I genuinely think for 99.999% of the people, both in your retirement funds and in your taxable funds, that's the way to go. You're talking about target date funds. Exactly. So funds that line up with your guess, your hypothesis of when you're going to retire, have that date in the title, and you just put all of your money there. Absolutely. Gene, literally after spending years of my career analyzing stocks and bonds and income statements and balance sheets, I have a lot of the bulk of my money is in a taxable account. So I have a lot of low cost basis things. If I could start all over again, I genuinely think I would put all of my money in target date retirement funds composed of index funds. That's the most important part, composed of index funds. We are talking with Manisha Takor about investing. We're going to come back and do a little more of that in a second, but just a brief word to remind everybody that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more from your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if all of that helped you reach your financial goals faster. It starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. And from there, Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. And you can get started today at Demand More Now. What I love about talking to you is I feel like I'm getting the chance to ask you the questions that we should all be asking of our financial advisors, because you're doing the job, but you're not necessarily doing it for us. So you can be really, really transparent about the answers. So here's a biggie. People wonder why financial advisors are worth paying for. So what kind of services should we be getting if we hire an advisor in exchange for a fee that can be 1% of assets under management? So here's the great irony. I think advisors add the absolute most value when you are paying them for losing your money. And that'll sound... Explain. Okay. So the biggest mistake I see people make is selling in down markets. When I hear somebody say 2007 to 2009 ruined my retirement, I know with certainty one of two things happened. They either had money invested that they knew they needed to spend to maintain their lifestyle, and they didn't have it in cash equivalent, so they had to pull it out at market lows, or they got scared and they pulled it out. So the benefit of the advisors is keeping you on the course when you are absolutely terrified. And if they do that, over the long run, you will earn back that 1% and so much more. But it only works if you have trust and understanding with that advisor. But that is the irony. It's not finding the hot investment or the hot stock. It's keeping you from shooting yourself in the foot. The last thing I'll just say is being a successful investor is about avoiding a handful of catastrophic mistakes. And that's the big misconception. People think it's about hitting the home run. It, it's not. It's making sure you don't dive into the crevice and get lost when things get scary. It's become Moneyball, right? Yeah. I mean, it really has. Yeah. If you look at and I can't even believe I am making a baseball analogy on this podcast. But if you look at 
the fact that it's about getting on base. It's just about get on base, get on base, get on base. It's not about the home runs. No, not at all. And, you know, you asked a second part to that question, which is what else should we expect from the advisor? And so I think that the number one thing that you want is somebody that's asking you a holistic set of questions. And that includes questions around your risk management, your insurance, um, and you don't want them to be selling you insurance. You just want them to be talking to you about it and evaluating it. You want them to be talking to you about your state planning, not making money from it, but helping you make sure you have thought through the right questions. And same thing on the tax component. You want somebody that's working with your CPA to make sure that you're maximizing um, tax efficiencies where possible. And ideally, if they're doing all of that, for the percent of assets under management, they're not charging you on an hourly basis. So when you go to the people who do charge you on an hourly basis, you are going in a very informed position with clear questions. And you've got a wing man or woman who will sit there and be in the conversation with you and not charge extra for that. As we go into the process of hiring an advisor, there are advisors who adhere to a fiduciary standard and there are those who adhere to a suitability standard. What's the difference, and how do you know which one you're getting? The way you know which one you're getting is just to ask them. You say, do you adhere to the suitability or the fiduciary standard? And they have to answer that honestly. But if you don't ask, they don't necessarily have to volunteer. The difference between the two, the suitability standard I liken to going to a doctor whose practice is funded by pharma company A, And they get bonus points towards office refurbishments every time they write a prescription for um, drug company A's drugs. And you go to them and you have allergies and you know the drug that works best for your body is pharma company B's. But they give you pharma company A's because it's suitable. It's an allergy drug. They don't have to disclose to you that they they did it because it benefited them or their company. A fiduciary-oriented Um, advisor has a legal obligation to put your interests ahead of the advisor's and ahead of the advisor's firm. And again, the suitability advisor does can put the interest of the firm and the advisor ahead of you so long as it's quote unquote suitable. So if you hear that this advisor adheres to the suitability standard, what's the, do you run? I would. I mean, I feel like there are so many great fiduciary advisors these days, there is no reason for anybody to work with an advisor. And this is a bold statement, but I would say there's no reason for anyone to work with an advisor under the suitability standard. Okay. Tell us a little more before we wrap up here about the Women Living a Richer Life community and tell us about your new podcast. One of the things that we have found um, at Brighton Jones, and I've noticed just throughout my financial literacy teachings um, that I do just on a pro bono basis, is that women in community um, create amazingly powerful things. Because when we learn something, we share it and we spread the word. And so um, Women Living a Richer Life is a program that Brighton Jones has put together to try and bring women in the five cities where we have offices together to empower each other, their kids, their families. And it's amazing to see the pay it forward effect. It's incredible. We see it in our Her Money private Facebook group all the time. You you start a thread, you ask a question, and you've got 30 women jumping in to just say, this is how I did it. Here's what I suggest. Read this book. Read this article. It's just phenomenal. 
Well, and I've seen it with the True Wealth podcast. I have reached out to my girlfriends to help spread the word. I I feel this podcast is what I've been called to do, to bring together um, money and passion and purpose and to help people use their hard-earned resources in a way that lights their soul up. And um, I've been amazed. I tell a couple of girlfriends, they tell more. And pretty soon I have this small army of folks willing to help me get launched. And it's just, it's heartwarming to see. I love what I'll end by saying um, Melinda Gates, who is, of course, um, out of Seattle, where we're headquartered, says, if you want to change the world, invest in women. She is absolutely right. Thank you for being here. Jean, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we will be listening to your podcast when it launches. Kelly will be right back with our mailbag. And Kelly has joined me in the studio wearing a very pretty sweater. Thank you so much. Courtesy of Nate, my boyfriend. Yeah, it's got a really pretty, like, scene on it. Yeah. It's it's a very Vermonty sweater. Is it pastoral? Is that the right word to use? Kind of pastoral. Yeah? Yeah. It's from Anthropology, And if anyone is very interested in knowing what it looks like or which one it is, I'm happy to message a photo of it to you. But I saw it, and I told him that I loved it, but it wasn't in my budget at the time. Aww. Yeah, and he surprised me with it. That is really sweet. He's really perfect. He's going to be so embarrassed that I'm saying this on the show, but that is the truth. It's like in Friends, where Rachel noticed the, the cameo and Ross bought it for her. Oh, I and it was a sign. That. It was a sign of his feelings to come. Oh. Nate. Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, Nate. <laughs> oh, he's going to love this. So that was a wonderful conversation. I'm clearly a huge fan of hers because I've talked to her, talked about her on the show before and that concept of us ladies, being socialized to wait until we feel like we know enough or that we're perfect. And I am so guilty of that, especially when it comes to investing. I think, A, you're not alone. But I also think we feel that way when we're in any uncertain waters. I was in Florida over the weekend with my mom, Mm -hmm. and she received an Instant Pot as a gift about six months ago, and it was in a box in the cupboard because she was scared of it because she was afraid (laughs) that she wouldn't be able to make it work as it was supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And I've become quite good with my (laughs) Instant Pot. And I pulled it out, and we made dinner together. And I know she'll use it at this point because sometimes what it takes is just having one positive experience and then you feel like you can continue to do it. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so I'm going to share this with everyone. I've been doing hip-hop classes. Ah! Yep. And for people who don't know what I look like, I'm 5'11", lanky, not what a hip-hop dancer looks like, generally speaking. And I, I don't look like one yet. Maybe never will. But I have done a few classes, and each time I feel more confident and... I hopefully maybe look better doing it, but this idea of sticking with it and building confidence with it, even if it doesn't look right or feel right just yet, like I'm early stages in that relationship. So the workout example is a really good one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, or whatever new skill you're trying to pick up. It's a new skill. Yeah. Yeah. I'm living out my fantasy of like save the last dance or center stage. I love that. Yeah. Center stage. What an amazing movie. Oh my God. I I 
know very, very few people who know that movie. Really? Yeah. It was not, I think it was more of your age group than my age group, Mm -hmm. but I, oh my God, every time it's on cable, I Mm -hmm. love that movie. Baby Kelly would put on the soundtrack, the CD, and dance around the house as if I was in the movie. Higher Ground. Higher. (laughs) That's such a good song. Yes. Okay. Well, now that you know way too much about me, we'll do questions. Our first one this week is from Jill. I recently got married and changed my taxes accordingly. My husband has an eight-year-old son from a previous relationship, so his taxes are taken out as married with one deduction. However, he only lists his son as a deduction every other year per an agreement with his ex. My taxes are taken out married with zero deductions. Should I change mine to also reflect the son we now share? What would be the possible ramifications if I do or I do not? Thank you for your advice or resources. Absolutely love the podcast. Thank you so much for saying that you you. love the podcast. Here's what I would suggest because I'm not a CPA. Run a TurboTax calculation or an H&R Block calculation, whichever software you're using, just run it both ways and see how it impacts you or ask this question of your tax advisor. The nice thing about tax software is that it's relatively cheap. And so you can play around with it and figure out which of these scenarios is most likely to work for you. And let's just use this as a reminder for everybody else to change your withholding too, or at least look at changing your withholding. This year has been a big wake-up call for a lot of people who were experiencing expecting bigger refunds than they got or who were expecting bigger refunds and didn't get a refund at all Mm. because the IRS changed the withholding tables in the middle of last year because of the new tax law. And so if you were surprised, it's a good sign that you need to go back in and change your withholding because we're already a couple of months into the 2019 filing season. And so you're getting behind on next year's withholding already. And you can also go back to our episode with Maggie Clockingay, which was a few weeks ago. We did everything about the tax law changes, changing your withholding. And I think our Thrive has some really good step-by-step takeaways to do that and where to go and the calculators that you can use to run it. Fantastic. Next, we'll do one from Emily. I have a credit card account with Care Credit, and I'm about to pay off my remaining balance. Hooray. The credit limit on the card is 500, and between this card and my two others, my total limit is 1750 I no longer will be using the Care Credit card, but because my total credit limit is so low, I'm afraid that closing it will make my credit score of 642 take a nosedive. I've been working so hard on my score all year. It's up 131 points since January, thanks to her money, she says. That's so nice. And I'm not sure what to do with this card. Thanks for your help and love the show. So I don't know if there's a fee associated with this card, but assuming there's no fee, just leave it open. Mm. Leave it open Mm -hmm. and don't use it. You can also call your other two credit card companies and ask them for an increase in your credit limit. And if they give you an increase in your limit that's commensurate with the credit line you'll be shutting down, Mm -hmm. then it should not impact your credit. I was just going to say I heard the other day that you could offset it by doing exactly what you just said and you said it the other day. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Repeat, Repeat what you told me. And we'll do one more from Kate. 
My boyfriend and his family are not savvy about financial planning. He took out student loans for college, $15,000, and his parents took out a Parent PLUS loan of $100,000. He has been paying off his own personal loans and now has only a few thousand left. However, the Parent PLUS loans have been ignored and have grown to $175,000 over the past eight years. This is extremely concerning for me as I can see it heading into a downward spiral. I want to give him and his family advice, but I'm not sure how. His family has been living under a tight budget since 2008 and don't have the means to pay off the student debt. Worse, his sister is in the same position too. So she's wondering if she should pursue one of two options or maybe both. The first is refinance those loans with a student refinancing company or help his family find a financial planner to advise and possibly pay for herself. So Kate, you are wonderful for even bringing this to our attention and being so thoughtful about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the solution may be somewhere in the middle. Mm. Rather than a straight-up financial advisor, you probably want to get them into the hands of a not-for-profit credit counselor who understands these particular kinds of issues and can help them figure out whether refinancing is even a possibility. If you refinance a student debt, they're going to rely on credit score. If these student loans have gone untended and unpaid, the credit score may be in such bad shape that refinancing may be impossible. But a not-for-profit credit counselor can help you sort through those issues and figure them out. And also, what it sounds like may happen down the road is that your boyfriend may actually need to step in and help with the actual repayment of these loans in a way that is palatable to him. He's not obligated to because they're not his debt, but it was his education and it may be something that he wants to do. So I would say look at this as a family. You as the girlfriend may want to take a step back and let your boyfriend and his parents try to come up with some sort of solution that they can all manage. But I agree with Kelly. I think you're a saint for stepping in. The final thing to be careful of, Mm -hmm. I don't know how old his parents are. And um, if in a refinance he is forced to sign or co-sign, that makes him obliged to pay down these loans. Student loans do not get dismissed except at death. Mm. And so... You're going to want to think very, very carefully about co-signing on any sort of refinance of these loans. I understand why you're stepping in, Kate. I mean, you're probably serious about this relationship and you're thinking, if I'm going to marry this guy, what then happens? And I think that's a really, really valid thing to do. But I would help with information take a step back and let your boyfriend and his parents try to go through the counseling process to work this out. Amazing. Thank you, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for writing in. Thanks so much. And this week's Thrive is courtesy of Pam. Mm -hmm. And Pam is one of our listeners. I was so excited about this, by the way. Pam emailed us a few months back after episode 149, in which we talked about the new rules of resume writing. And she wrote that it's important to know that nowadays the bots, B-O-T-S, are scanning resumes versus your resume actually landing in an inbox as an attachment. The best format is Microsoft Word saved as a PDF with a super traditional layout so that the bots can easily scan for things like employment dates, 
titles, and keywords. Fancy graphic resumes won't cut it, she says. And if you use them when you're uploading to Indeed or ZipRecruiting or one of the applications that allow you to upload your resume, you're going to end up at the bottom of the digital pile for sure. And so here is what Pam told all three of her college-age, soon-to-be-graduating students. Have one main traditional black-and-white resume in a Word PDF that you can manipulate, matching up keywords to the job descriptions, and have another graphically pleasing resume with the colors and the blocks and the cool texts and all that. Present that graphic resume when you have the opportunity to send a direct email to the hiring manager or when you go in for an in-person interview, but use the Microsoft PDF when you're asked to upload to a site, an upload of any kind. She also says that some big companies have their own internal resume upload mechanisms. And it's really important to know that not all companies are alike. There are so many different platforms companies are using for uploading and scanning resumes. The other thing, and I thought this was so smart, the other thing that she recommends is to purchase your own domain name. It's like $10 a year, and you can use it for a variety of reasons. For example, she owns her own name. It forwards directly to her LinkedIn profile. And she says that we were spot on, Kelly, when we told people to keep their LinkedIn clean and up to date because so many people neglect it. Pam, thank you so much. We had to share this. We love hearing from you. And if the rest of you are not in our private Facebook group, please join us or email us at contact at hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Manisha Takor for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Ooh, join us next week. We will be back with the behavior gaps. Carl Richards, also known as the New York Times sketch guy. We'll talk soon.